Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 252, Fred Sanders on Seeing the Trinity in Scripture and His Secret. In this episode of the Trinity's podcast, I'm going to present my edit of a public lecture given by Biola professor Dr. Fred Sanders on October 20th, 2018. His full title was The Triune God of the Bible, Seeing the Trinity in Scripture. We've talked about Dr. Sanders' work before in the Trinity's podcast. Check out podcast numbers 192 through 194. Let it suffice to say that he pretty much only researches and publishes on the Trinity And he does, being an evangelical, focus on the Bible and the alleged presence of the triune God in the Bible. Dr. Sanders was invited to speak by this interesting institution, the Lanier Theological Library. They have a lecture series. I've never been there. Um, It looks like a really nice library. It's a private library. I take it it's a collection formed by a wealthy lawyer in Texas uh, who loves the Bible and biblical studies and theology. And I suppose in a way it's kind of a prestigious invitation. Uh, It's a nice venue and it resulted in a really professional looking video. And of course, I've got the link to the full video at the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. The subject of his lecture is something of intense interest, I think, to the listeners of this podcast, which is, how do you get the Trinity out of Scripture? That's his topic, and he's given a very nice stage on which to make his case. And it's interesting what he does and what he doesn't do. He's giving a popular talk, and he loves art. I love traditional art, too. I don't hold that against him. But I've edited out the parts here where he's just talking about medieval illustrations, and I've just included the parts where he's actually making his case, where he's saying things that are arguably relevant to how you get Trinitarian theology out of the Bible. I've also edited out a lot of other material. Um, Dr. Sanders can get a bit chatty and sort of say things that aren't directly relevant to his case. So I've kind of edited down the case here to what I think are really his essential points. What he does is he breaks his case down into two parts. First, he gives what he calls a whole Bible flyover that will prep us to see the Trinity in the Bible. And then he descends to particulars and he interprets what he would say are three important passages. Now, when you're talking about seeing the Trinity in the Bible, the big concern has to be, are you just projecting the triune God into the Bible, or are you actually perceiving something that's really there? Are you making out something that is there but could possibly be missed? Or are you, on the basis of your own theoretical commitments, just sort of projecting the Trinity? Are you doing exegesis or eisegesis? Let's hear his case then, and every once in a while, I'll jump in and give some reactions to it. Thank you very much. It's really good to be here. This is my first trip to the Lanier Theological Library, and I'm just really impressed. It's a great space to be speaking to you in. I want to talk about the triune God revealed in the Bible and how to see that God in Scripture. Now, seeing is a metaphor what I mean by seeing is, instead of just receiving the doctrine of the, of the Trinity from tradition and thinking, I believe this because wiser, older Christians, many of them centuries past, authorized this and endorse it, and so I take it on credit that, yeah, we should believe that. It's probably in there somewhere. 
But then if someone were to ask you, where exactly in Scripture is the doctrine of the Trinity? If you sort of hem and haw at that point and gesture broadly at the whole book and say, you know, sort of like Prego spaghetti sauce, it's in there. Right? But you can't actually turn to any particular section and say, let me show you how you can be a good Berean, check for yourself, and actually open the Bible and see the doctrine of the Trinity. That's what I'm after tonight. We believe in the Trinity because we believe it's revealed in Scripture. This Christian salvation thing is going to work at all. It's going to work because God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As we turn to try to find where we can see the doctrine of the Trinity in Scripture, one thing we're going to notice is it's really linked to the gospel. Trinity and gospel always go together. Even in terms of the clarity of the revelation of the Trinity, the clarity is not there in the Old Testament, right? It really becomes clear in the New Testament. But you could also say that about the gospel. The gospel is predicted, promised, prophesied, foreshadowed, prefigured. Clearly, the Old Testament is pointing forward to this fulfillment of salvation that's going to happen. It's when the new covenant comes, when Jesus and the Holy Spirit arrive, that both the gospel is uh, unveiled and revealed in its fullness, and the triune nature of God is unveiled and revealed in its fullness. So Trinity and gospel are bundled. That happens to be my life message and the main thing I say everywhere I go all the time. It's also the background for how I'm going to show you how to see the Trinity in the Bible. Okay, so the Trinity is linked to the gospel. Of course, the gospel is indisputably in the Bible. Every Christian is going to agree on that. And so if the Trinity's inextricably linked with it, the Trinity must also be in the Bible. If we were trying to show, if we were trying to argue that the Bible implies some Trinity doctrine, this wouldn't be a way to go about doing it because he's just presupposing that it's there. But maybe he's just getting warmed up and is going to give his reasons farther on. But also we should be asking, what does he mean by the Trinity? So let's get straight to the Bible. And I'm going to talk about the Old Testament and the New Testament in dialogue. I am well aware that the Old Testament is, as my Old Testament scholar best friend tells me, most of the Bible. So I am going to talk here at the beginning about the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. But here's the thing. What happens right there in the middle of the Bible, in the sense of right between the Old Testament and the New Testament, is the Father sends the Son and the Spirit. This is my plot summary for the Bible. This is the main thing that happens. The Father sends the Son, that is the incarnate Son, Jesus Christ, and pours out the Spirit, that is the Spirit who arrives in this epochal way at Pentecost on the basis of the finished work of Christ. The Father sends them between the writing of the Old Testament and the writing of the New Testament. They came, and then later, the writings of the apostles were about them. You see the move I'm making here? I got it from B.B. Warfield, a classic essay he wrote about 100 years ago, and here's how he starts. The doctrine of the Trinity is not yet revealed in the Old Testament, if we mean clearly revealed, right? There are shadows, there are indications, but if you're talking about actual revelation, it is not yet made known under the conditions of the Old Covenant um, in the writings of the Old Testament. We can look back later with light borrowed from the coming of Christ in the Spirit and see many things there, but it's not yet there in the Old Testament. Fairly uncontroversial. You might want to pick a fight with that and bring up your favorite Old Testament Trinity adumbrations and say, what about that, B.B. Warfield? Uh, but it's pretty uncontroversial to say the Trinity is not yet made known in the Old Testament. The next move he makes is to say, the doctrine of the Trinity is also not revealed in the New Testament. 
Because by the New Testament, the Son and the Spirit have already arrived, made known the triune nature of God, and now documents are being written about them by apostles in the power of the Holy Spirit. So the Old Testament's too soon for the revelation of the Trinity. The New Testament's too late for the revelation of the Trinity. And so now I'm going to fill up the next 10,000 words writing my article about the Trinity for the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia by saying the Trinity is not revealed in the Old Testament or the New Testament, right? It's actually revealed between the Testaments. Now, this is gutsy, and you'd have to be B.B. Warfield to try to pull this off. By between the Testaments, of course, he does not mean intertestamental literature. He does not mean that one blank page they put in your Bible between Malachi and Matthew. He means in the actual historical arrival of the Son and the Spirit, So that what's the first voice you hear in the New Testament? Maybe 1 Thessalonians? By that time, Paul is already saying, you know, Jesus and the Holy Spirit. You know, that stuff we talked about. You know, that stuff that already happened. In the rest of that essay, he then makes much of the fact that in the New Testament, Paul never stops and says, now concerning the triune nature of God, brethren, I would not have you be ignorant. There's no point at which Paul thinks that he is establishing for the first time in writing and in teaching the doctrine of the Trinity. He presupposes it. The apostles are all writing with a confident, robust grasp of the fact that the one God is Father and Son and Spirit. This explains a lot. It takes uh, passages in the New Testament that you wish were more explicit about the Trinity, and it recasts them because you say, oh, right, they are indirectly referring to a reality that they all are aware of in the very act of being the church, of being saved by Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. The doctrine is already sort of there, and at no point do they have to establish it. Wow. Okay, there's a lot to comment on there. What Warfield was saying was really kind of an inference from Reformed Orthodoxy. The Protestant view is that divine revelation happened in the first century. Mainstream Protestants like Warfield think that the Trinity is an obvious and required Christian doctrine. Therefore, the Trinity must have been revealed in the first century. And so he's just saying, well, that's when the actual revelation occurred. The thing about that is it really goes against all the historical evidence. Nobody, but nobody in the first century, nobody in the second century, nobody in the third Christian century, nobody in the first half of the fourth Christian century mentions a triune God as such. No one mentions the idea of the one God who consists of three persons, at least if you exclude modalistic monarchians from the count. I've talked about this in podcast 189, and in my opening statement in podcast 249, this is one of the hard historical facts that makes it very difficult to read New Testament authors as Trinitarians. This is the fact that they have no word and no phrase that they understood at that time to refer to a triune God. What is the chance that they believed in a triune God and yet didn't have a word or phrase to refer to that triune God? It's ridiculously unlikely. You might say, well, what about when they say God and they don't specify Father, Son, or Holy Spirit? Well, what all textual scholars will tell you, whether they're Trinitarian or Unitarian, is that normally in the New Testament, the word God means the Father. In a small number of passages, it can be argued that it means the Son. Maybe once or twice you could try to argue that it means the Spirit. But yeah, it never means the Trinity. That's astounding if they're Trinitarians. 
Now, Sanders thinks that Paul is a Trinitarian, which kind of blows me away. I mean, Paul clearly says and implies and everywhere assumes that the one God is just the Father himself. He always distinguishes the one God, which is the Father, from the one Lord, which is the risen and exalted Jesus, a man. Sanders comes along and says, well, you know, all the New Testament authors presuppose that God is triune. And so that's why they never have to talk about it. What he's doing there is he's reacting to another historical fact that I think is a big problem for interpreting the New Testament as Trinitarians. And this is the fact that they never, ever make this a teaching point. He mentions this later in the lecture. There's never any passage where they sit you down and tell you that God is triune, that the one God really is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and not only the Father. It just doesn't happen. Now, that's just unaccountable if they're Trinitarians, because Jews were not Trinitarians, and these are mostly Jewish authors. The early Christian movement was mostly Jewish. So it would be a point that would need expanding on. It would be a point that would need explicit explanation. They'd need to hammer the table about this, and they never do. His explanation is, oh, well, that's because everybody's a Trinitarian back then. Well, you know, I invite you to check out the other facts that I cite in my opening statement of my recent debate or in podcast 189. There's a whole panoply of facts that make sense if the authors are Unitarians in the New Testament and which would be really surprising if they're Trinitarians. And take care, I'm not just making the point that they don't have the word Trinity in the Bible. That's fine. My point is they don't have any word that was then understood to refer to a tripersonal God. And what is the chance of that if they firmly believed in a triune God? Sanders here is going against what some Trinitarians would say, and I would consider this a better historically informed position, a more sophisticated position. Some Trinitarians would say, well, back then they were still trying to work out whether God is simple or complex, and they didn't really have enough concepts, they didn't have a fully developed terminology, and so back then, you know, maybe they were quasi-Trinitarian, almost Trinitarian, maybe they were kind of confused Trinitarians, they were sort of trying to work their way out of Jewish theology, and so they're going to come across as a little bit befuddled, but that's okay, it gets straightened out in the 4th century. Notice he doesn't say that. He's like, nope, you got clear belief in triune God from the very start. And it's so clear that no one feels the need to explain it or really deliberately comment on the topic. That is a tough pill to swallow. Now, Dr. Sanders said that the hypothesis that the New Testament authors are all Trinitarians explains a lot. I'd like to call him on that one. What exactly does it explain? He seems to say that well, it's convenient for the Trinitarian because then if you add in the assumption that they're constantly presupposing the triune God, then you'll see the triune God all over the New Testament. Well, sure, but that's kind of a trivial point, right? If we're seriously trying to explain, let's say, what the authors do and don't say, what is it that's explained by the hypothesis that they're Trinitarians? I've been looking into this for a long time. I'm pretty sure it all makes sense when you read it that they're not Trinitarians. And a lot of textual scholars and historians are on my side in this. Okay, but let's let him continue and again keep asking, well, what does he mean by the Trinity? Well, the Old Testament then is the time of promise, and the New Testament is the time of fulfillment. And if we look a little bit closer at that, uh, the Old Testament... Uh, in its forward look at salvation, is saying that the Messiah and the Spirit are coming. You can kind of bundle 
the one who is the Messiah, with the arrival of the Holy Spirit, both are apocalyptic expectations, right? In that final age, the Messiah will come. The Spirit will be poured out. Messiah means the one who is anointed, right? And specifically, uh, we can talk about the anointing with the Holy Spirit. By the time of the New Testament, according to Warfield, you've got authors saying, hey, the Messiah and the Spirit already came. So the revelation of the Trinity, if we're being careful with the word revelation, happens between the Testaments. We have a book. It's a really great book. It's inerrant. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's the trustworthy guide. But the arrival of the book was not the main thing, and we didn't wait for the book to have the central truths shown to us. Jesus and the Spirit are the main thing. And instead of saying something very straightforward in the first person, like, I am this, I am that, I am the other thing, God will say things like, I will turn my face toward you. When God turns his face to you, has God turned toward you? Yes, he turned his face toward you. So his face is God, and yet it's the face of God. I think God is communicating something about an attribute or a poetic way of describing his presence with his people or a way that God self-describes his action for his people. It always has these sorts of features to it, like the name of God sometimes functions as God. Well, some of the others in the Old Testament are the law of God, the hand of God, um, instead of God just saying, I will do that, he, will, he says he'll stretch forth his hand and do it. The wisdom of God, of course, uh, takes on um, these attributes and is, is somehow God and yet is of God, is from God, is the wisdom of God. Uh, the glory of God and its indwelling especially functions in this way. The word of God and the spirit of God are numbered among these. And if we were to just go through these, if I were to tell you, guess what? In the one God, there's more than one person. Look around in the Old Testament and see if you could find them. If you were to do that, by the way, don't do it, you might kind of go through here and say, well, there's at least nine persons, because I think word is somebody, spirit is somebody, glory is somebody, name is somebody, wisdom is somebody, yet it's all one God somehow, but there's like, I don't know, 27 persons in this. I do not know how to say 27, the 27 version of Trinity, but it's just as well, because we shouldn't say it anyway. Because we're not in that kind of business, right? We're not looking into God's ways of speaking and manifesting himself and deciding which of those are persons. That would be kind of hopeless. What really happens is the incarnation and Pentecost. Christ comes and the Holy Spirit comes. And based on that very concrete, experienced reality of God manifesting himself personally in space and time and history... Then those people read their Bible, which, of course, is the Old Testament. They go back and read that and do a Bible study. Jesus explains things to them on the road to Emmaus. And they say, oh, that thing where you said you were going to, God said he's going to send forth his word? That was you? Right? And similarly, they go through and say, so it also seems like this, in this passage, the hand of God is kind of about Jesus. But in this passage, and this is where it gets kind of fun, some of these seem to be representations of an Old Testament pneumatology. That the, the person who concretely shows up at Pentecost, you can look back and say, oh, that was always how God dwelt in the temple in his glory. That, all of that was the person we give the New Testament name Holy Spirit to. Um, John makes it easy for us, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word became flesh. And you're no longer guessing and trying to pick how many persons there are in God. There are really only three candidates. You think about this for a few generations and you say, so it seems like God has not changed. God has made something more specific and concrete known about himself. And in light of that, we can retrospectively go back and identify throughout the entire Bible, the Son and the Spirit. Okay, what was going on in that section? 
this is what I understand him to be saying. In the Old Testament, God appears in various guises, and it isn't just three, it's more than that. But finally, in these latter days, God appears to us in three ways as Father, Son, and Spirit. I take it that Sanders is basically a one-self Trinitarian. He thinks there's one he, there's one self in the Trinity. The persons of the Trinity are not selves for him. They're just kind of ways that God is or something, or ways that God is and presents. And so that's what he's doing. This presupposes the Trinity. It's not showing you really how to deduce the Trinity from the Bible. But now he's going to try to go into some more details momentarily. There's some fascinating discussions in the second century where people like Irenaeus are trying to decide, is wisdom a word for your doctrine of Christ or is wisdom a word for your doctrine of the Holy Spirit? Discuss amongst yourselves, right? Basically, I'm not sure there's one right answer there. There's clearly some wisdom Christology going on from Proverbs. There's clearly some wisdom pneumatology going on from some other areas. So I'm not hard and fast about this, but what I'm saying is we can be absolutely certain about the coming of the Son and the coming of the Spirit. And so sometimes people ask the simple question, why aren't there more than three persons in the Trinity? And the main answer is, I don't know. Um, Except the answer from the Bible is, there are really no other candidates, right? Like we're we're not looking around going, I wonder if that person's part of God. In light of this, I added the word Father last because there's a sense in which God, the one God, the maker of heaven and earth, is not clearly revealed as Father until the Son of God is revealed, There's a kind of a common sense way of thinking. First, we had the Father, then the Father sent the Son. But you don't have the Father without the Son. You just have God. At best in the Old Testament, you have metaphorically the Father in that God brought us all forth, and there's a way in which our Creator is our Maker, but it's analogical. Whereas in the New Testament, we get the revelation that Father is the name of God, and Son is also the name of God, and these are relational, and they go together. It took a few centuries to get clear about that, But in those centuries of getting clear, no new information was added. It really was just pondering the apocal nature of the difference between what was made known about God under the Old Covenant and what is made known about God under the New Covenant. If you want to have very Trinitarian thoughts, you shouldn't draw a triangle and think, how can I get to the number three? That's not the key idea. The key idea is always, what is Christ doing and what is the Spirit doing as they are sent from the Father? They're not two unrelated missions. The mission of the Spirit and the mission, the mission of the Son and the mission of the Spirit are always together. Um, Irenaeus in the second century used the image of the two hands of God. It's a very rough image, um, but he says, God is always directly involved with us because the Father is never without his two hands, the Son and the Spirit. Again, I use that one because I'm not afraid that anyone's going to go home and think, so is God like this, like a guy in two hands? It's it's an incomplete enough image that all it gets for you is the necessary two-handedness, or uh, I guess if I were inventing doctrines, I'd talk about the doctrine of the ambidextrity of the work of God. Yeah, that would be. Then you'd really be getting your money's worth. Okay, that's the second thing about the relation of the Old Testament and the New Testament, is the clarity about the nature of God without contradicting or refuting or changing anything about the God that we knew. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David truly knew the true God. And in some of those cases, they were much closer to God than I am in terms of some dramatic experiences with God. But as a new covenant believer, I have to confess that I know more about the identity of God. It doesn't contradict what Old Testament saints believed, but it's more concrete. So a couple of comments. 
part of what Sanders is saying is that later Christians have looked back into the Old Testament and found that there is talk about the Son and the Spirit in the Old Testament. That, of course, is uncontroversial. There are predictions about the coming of the Messiah. There are predictions about God pouring out his Spirit in a new way. Of course, what was innovative in the second century was saying that the Son was active in B.C. times and saying that the Spirit was an additional divine person to God. The quote from Irenaeus, remember Irenaeus is basically a late 2nd century guy, and he's very much enthralled by the Logos theories, and he's one of the guys who thinks that God can't interact directly, God always interacts indirectly with creation through these two intermediaries. He compares them to hands, but like other Logos theorists, he thinks they are two other beings than God, two other lesser divine beings, essentially. Uh, When he talks about the church taking some time to get clear about father and son being corollaries, he's gesturing there, I take it, at Origen's arguments that uh, if the father exists, then the son must exist, therefore the son must be eternal. I think those are sophistical arguments, but I'm not going to discuss them here. Is the Trinity the same God as in the Old Testament? I could see why he would think this as a oneself Trinitarian. It's just that God has these three personalities that's consistent with the one-self God of the Old Testament. Of course, a lot of Trinitarians believe that the three persons of the Trinity are three selves, and they think it's really like a family. It's like a group. It's like a circle of friends that's perfect. Yeah, that looks like it would conflict with the Old Testament God. God is always a he. They use singular verbs for God. God has a personal name in the Old Testament. And so it would be a shock if God turned out to be a they, if God turned out to be a group of three divine beings. I've published articles on this. It looks like God would have been deceiving us if the one God were really three beings. And then these three beings are presenting themselves as if they're one self throughout the whole Old Testament. But anyway, that's not Dr. Sanders' view. Okay, so God sends his son and his spirit. That's a fair characterization of the plot of the New Testament, I think. What Dr. Sanders seems to not acknowledge, though, is that all non-Trinitarian Christians would agree that in the New Testament, God sends his Son and his Spirit. And on the face of it, it's hard to see how that would constitute revelation that God is three, quote, persons. Because the one God is the Father, the Son is a man explicitly in the New Testament, and God's Spirit, well, that's God's Spirit, just like in the Old Testament. For God to send his son, his spirit, why would anybody think that's a revelation of the triune God? That's not what Justin Martyr thought. That's not what Irenaeus thought. That's not what Origen thought. That's not what Eusebius thought. That's not really what any of the early Christians thought. If you, again, if you exclude the modalistic monarchians. Okay, so we're still kind of waiting for getting any serious grip on the New Testament and showing how it implies the Trinity. It's been assumed that it does. It's been asserted that all of these authors assume the Trinity. Okay, but what if we can't see that? What's he going to do for us? What sort of evidence can he give us? When the Trinity's podcast returns, Dr. Sanders continues his case and gets more specific.
next thing I want to talk about in the transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament, and by the way, I'm intentionally doing a big whole Bible flyover here before I get to a few specific verses in the later part of the talk, is that reading forward from the Old Testament, we have a clear expectation of a Messiah coming, that is a son of David who will rule in certain ways and in whom certain promises will be fulfilled, and he'll be great David's greater son, but by that I don't mean Solomon, I mean an even greater son than great David. And so we're looking for that son, but we're also looking for a suffering servant uh, as we read through the theology of Isaiah. There are plenty of promises uh, where the Lord himself will come to his temple. So there's a sense in which Old Testament expectation is not just waiting for the son of David to carry out certain promises, but to wait for God to show up, that the Lord himself will come. So this is this huge horizon of expectation. Um, and of course, Moses promised that a prophet like him would arise and that we should listen to him. And we're also looking for eschatological things, end times things like the pouring out of the spirit on all flesh as prophesied in Joel 2. Well, it's easy to do an Old Testament Bible study and come out looking for, say, seven or eight different things to come. You're looking at the future from the Old Testament thinking, this is going to be a busy, kind of crowded zone of fulfillment where a lot of things, you know, the Messiah is going to come, the servant's going to come, then the Lord's going to show up, and all this is going to happen. Of course, the interesting thing that happens in the New Testament is all that fulfillment converges on the single event of the Father sending the Son and the Holy Spirit all converging on the revelation of the Trinity when the Father sends the Son and the Holy Spirit to accomplish our salvation. There is a revelation of God with us in the intimacy of God making himself known to us as Father, Son, and Spirit that I think in some cases exceeds Old Testament expectations. That's a high claim for the doctrine of the Trinity, but I think it's an apostolic claim. Okay, last thing I want to say now about the relation of the Old and the New Testament and how that bears on our knowledge of God as Trinity the God of the Bible is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that is made known less intimately. Because, why? Because the gospel is not yet put into effect under the conditions of promise. Okay, well, that is the big picture. Okay, that's the big picture. But so far, there have been absolutely no reasons given why a person should read the New Testament as Trinitarian, that is, having to do with a tripersonal God. It's only been assumed. And I think it's an obvious anachronism to project the idea of a tripersonal God into the New Testament, because it's never mentioned. In my view, it's never implied. If someone thinks it's implied, I would like them to show me where it is that the author teaches something that implies that God is multipersonal. Anything. It doesn't even have to be three persons. It just has to be two persons. How do you get multi-personal God out of the New Testament? Listening to Dr. Sanders, you would never even guess that there were Christians who didn't think that there was a triune God in the New Testament. You wouldn't guess that the first three centuries of Christians didn't hold to any theory like that. You also wouldn't guess that ever since the Reformation, there's been a steady drip, sometimes a steady slow pour of Protestants going to the Bible and saying, oh, wait, there's no triune God there. Why did they tell me that? And then becoming non-Trinitarian, or we say Unitarian Christians. Dr. Sanders, of course, knows that they exist. We featured on this very podcast a debate he did years ago with Sir Anthony Buzzard, uh, but he, he doesn't think the audience needs to know that. Interesting. As I see it on a popular level, this is very much a live question, whether or not the Bible, truly interpreted, properly understood, is Trinitarian. 
Okay, but that was all just the warm-up. Dr. Sanders has promised that he's going to get to some texts. Let me shut up and let him do that. What I want to do now for you is go through three key texts on the doctrine of the Trinity. I think it's really important to establish the big picture first, because I never want to give the impression that the doctrine of the Trinity is assembled in a sort of here-reverse, there-reverse fashion. You'll always be frustrated if you think you're going to just pick through the Bible, pick out the right verses, scotch tape them together, and get the doctrine. You can do that. I'd be glad to perform that event for you um, at any time. You know, I could give you diagrams. Uh, you can work your way around, prove the Son is God, prove the Father is God, prove they're not each other. That's a doable thing. That's not how we got to the doctrine of the Trinity. We got to the doctrine by reflecting on all of Scripture in a holistic way. That's a big advantage. What that means is the Trinity is not one strange little doctrine we manage to put together if we work it just right. It's the central message. Yeah? That, that's an advantage. Uh, it, it is to, to get the point of Scripture and then step back one step and say, okay, I get the storyline of, uh, story of Scripture. What does this mean about who God is? When you ask that question, the Christian answer is, it means God is Father, Son, and Spirit. One God in three persons. Nevertheless, we can experience it as a disadvantage, because we can experience as, I like my doctrines verse-sized. When you ask me why I believe something, I would like to point to a chapter and verse and quote it to you like an Awana kid and just nail it, right? <laughs> I mean, proof texts are awesome. Um, I don't want to be in the position of like waving my hand at the whole Bible and saying, like, you know, generally it's Trinitarian. The doctrine of the Trinity really is too large to fit in one verse. We'll look at some golden passages here, but none of them lay out the entire doctrine of the Trinity all in one place. You do have to sort of gather in truth from all of Scripture. And that's why I wanted to start with the big picture. The doctrine of the Trinity is too big to fit in one verse. Let's see, what's the biggest Protestant denomination in this country? That would be the Southern Baptists. What does their official statement of faith say about the Trinity, here it is, the eternal triune God reveals himself to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with distinct personal attributes, but without division of nature, essence, or being. Seems to me like that would be a pretty good length for a verse in the Bible. There isn't a verse like that. Never mind verses, though. The embarrassing fact here is there's no passage of which this is the subject matter. Dr. Sanders' stance here is, is really strange. I mean, he seemed to say that it was just hand-waving to say, well, the Trinity's in there somewhere and just sort of point at the whole Bible. He seemed to recognize that that, that gets nowhere. That shouldn't persuade anybody of anything. And yet, that's really what he's doing, to focus on the actual plot point that God in the New Testament sends his Son and his Spirit yeah, right, but where's the part that says the Son and the Spirit are divine persons within the triune God? That's not there. We need an argument to show that we're not just projecting a 4th century and beyond idea back into 1st century texts. Okay, but he's finally getting around to the text. Okay, the first verse I want to look at is, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Here's something I want to point out about this passage. It is talking about what was already true at Genesis 1, right? Obviously, John is referring back to another book that starts in the beginning. But what he wants to say is, 
in the beginning, there was already something going on in God. The word, the word already is not here in the text, but that's the sense. In the beginning, already was the word. You can think about this in terms of the question, how far back do you have to start the story of Jesus to get the story of Jesus right? In the beginning, right? But you can kind of see the gospel writers having a contest about this. Mark decides, well, you can't just say once upon a time was Jesus. You have to start with the baptism of John. No, in fact, you have to start with Isaiah saying, prepare the way. So that, that works. And then Matthew says, mm, I mean, Isaiah's great, but that's, you know, that's exilic. Uh, we've got to go back further than that. I'm not saying you're wrong, Mark. I'm just saying, what if we put in a genealogy and did this the right way and kind of went all the way back to Abraham? And Luke comes in and says, that's good. But if you're doing a genealogy, why don't you run that thing all the way back to Adam? Abraham, that's 12. That's Genesis 12. But uh, Adam, that, now we're getting back into the first chapters. And then John comes in and says, you guys aren't really getting this right. <laughs> if you really want to say what was manifested when Jesus came, you're going to have to go all the way back before Abraham. You're going to have to go back before Adam. You're going to have to go back before the foundation of the world, which is this great New Testament phrase, which I don't think the Old Testament ever dares to say. It's the fact that you meet Jesus and say, something's going on here that goes back before the foundation of the world. You go back before the foundation of the world, there's nowhere to put anything except in God. And that's where John puts him. The word was with God and the word was God. That was already going on. And then all the things were made through him. Right. Good points. I do agree that John is kind of pushing things farther than the other gospel writers. He's saying that if you want to know the origin of Jesus, in a sense, it goes back to the beginning. You have to go back to God's own word by which he created all things. It's that word which we see manifest in the man, Jesus. Notice that here Dr. Sanders is assuming that the word is personally identical to the man, Jesus. He's assuming that the logos is like the pre-human Jesus. The text doesn't say that. And here again, I assume he knows about this, but he doesn't give any hint of it here, talking to this popular audience. There were quite a few ancient debates about how to take John 1. Some of them took the Logos to be a second god, a lesser god through which the god created. Other mainstream Christians said, what? There aren't two creators, there aren't two gods, there's only one god. We uphold the monarchy of the Father. And God's word here is just something like a divine attribute or action, which is then active in the man Jesus. Right? These are what historians call dynamic monarchians. And that's basically a biblical Unitarian type of view. Okay, so again, we're just assuming the Trinity. Oh, well, let's read this according to our assumption. And now he gets abstract. And he's commenting here on the first part of the passage. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. How can you with something and was something at the same time? How can you have withness and wasness? If I had my son Fred here with me, I could say, Fred is with Fred. And you'd say, yes, that is clear. But then if I hugged him close and said, Fred is Fred. <laughs> you'd be worried about my parenting and like, right, all kinds of... On the other hand, if I, if I put him aside and said, okay, Fred is Fred. And Fred is with Fred. Then you'd think, now I'm also worried about you. Because you just are you. You're not with you. Or if you bring your son in, you're just with them. You, 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 know, you don't was him. You know? But somehow, the relationship between God and his word is a relationship of both wasness and withness. This is what's fun and infuriating about reading John. 
He sets you puzzles like this all throughout, you know, uh, all throughout the gospel, he does this. And he starts it right in these first lines. Simple little words, but you have to kind of say, on the one hand, there's witness, which is like relation and distinction. On the other hand, there's identity, which is just, you know, the verb to be in, in, the, in talking about God. So both of those are going on at the same time. Fundamental building block here of the doctrine of the Trinity. Keynote of the Gospel of John clues you into how to read the meaning of the story that he then turns to tell, where Jesus talks about the Father and the Son constantly and then begins talking about the Spirit. Okay, my comment on that is that this abstract jibber-jab about threeness and oneness is not to the point. A better reading of the passage is that John is kind of referencing the statement in Proverbs 8 that wisdom was with God at the time of his creation. And you can argue for this by pointing to parallel intertestamental passages where God's wisdom or word is with him. Uh, how is there a distinction in an identity here? Well, it's just the difference between a thing and its attribute, its wisdom or its intention or its thought. So there aren't two things, it's just a thing and a way that thing is. That's a distinction I think we understand. It's like the difference between you and your love of chocolate, or the distinction between you and your IQ. Okay, but we're waiting for the Trinity payoff here from John 1. Trinity payoff, go. Well, I'm showing you just the top part of a diagram here. You might have seen this diagram of the Trinity, this shield that represents the logical relations between the terms in the Trinity. And it says, the Father is God, the Son is God, but the Father is not the Son. This is just a bare bones logical kind of abstraction of what you have to have to have the two related to each other. They can't simply be each other, and yet they are both God. I chopped off the Holy Spirit. I did that because John did it. The, the opening verses of the Gospel of John just want you to get this wasness and withness. They just want you to get this unity and identity plus relation and distinction. That is enough. That's a big task to handle in the first couple of verses of a book. Then later on, he'll introduce the Holy Spirit. The Spirit comes in, really comes on strong in chapter 14 and following. Okay, so how much support for a doctrine of a triune God is in that text? Absolutely none at all. No support at all. Now he's saying, well, hey, can't we read it as consistent with the triune God? And this is just talking about the Father and the Son. Uh, well, I mean, it depends how the passage is to be taken. Look, if it's only talking about a difference between God and his word by which he made all things, it's not even clear whether or not this is consistent with the Trinity. About the Holy Spirit in John... Does John think that the Holy Spirit is literally a person, or is he personifying in talking about God's Spirit? And again, ask yourself, does John really teach the Holy Spirit to be one of three persons in the triune God? You can make a case that John thinks that the one God is the Father, and you can check out my podcast 70 if you want to see one way to approach that. Okay, that's his first text. Now he moves on to his second. Matthew 28. The whole story of Matthew happens, and the risen Jesus says to the disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Um, I just want to do a little counting exercise here with you. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's three, right? There's threeness going on in this verse. If you put this verse in the context of all of Matthew, it is something of a surprise ending. You get all the way through the 28 chapters, and you think you know what's going on, and then Jesus drops this on you, 
And you have to think, so that was kind of the point of everything you were just saying? Because this is sort of new language. The Father, stated absolutely like that. Not my Father or our Father, but the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Matthew prepared you for it a little bit in chapter 11, where Jesus said, no one knows the Father but the Son, and no one knows the Son but the Father. But here at the end, he wraps it up and restates it as part of the name of God that he wants his disciples to be baptized into. Well, there's threeness there. I kind of make a big deal out of this because when people say, do you believe in the Trinity? Do you think the Trinity is in the Bible? Often it's a fight over the T word, right? It's surprisingly easy to get hung up on the word. And I'm willing to say I'm after the doctrine or the meaning of the Trinity, that is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as one God. I don't really care about the word itself, but the word is really helpful and it's a great traditional word. And it's just Latin for threeness. Trinity is just a Latin way of talking about threeness. Triunity is a way of talking about three and oneness, but if someone says, do you believe in the Trinity? Well, one thing you could do is say, could you say that in English? Because Trinity, that sounds, like, that sounds like algebra, or that sounds like Latin, or Roman Catholic, or something. I don't know what that is. Just like, ask me, do I believe in threeness? And then I look at Matthew 28 and say, I believe in threeness. Look, one, two, three. Now, then we could fight about what you believe about threeness, right? Uh, you have to believe the right thing about threeness, but threeness is uncontroversial. So when people ask me, is the word Trinity in the Bible? My short answer is no, of course not. The concept is there. It's a later helpful label. But if I'm feeling a little bit puckish and say, I don't know, am I allowed to count? Right? (laughs) Have I added anything to the word of God when I count? Because you have threeness going on here, right? You have the one name of the three somethings. Yeah, there are three somethings there. But if you read the rest of the book, you'll know that the Father is the one God, the God of Israel. The Son is a human being, God's unique Messiah, and the Spirit of God is just the Spirit of God. So there's threeness, but that's just a threesome, a triad. There's God, His Son, and His Spirit. In a sense, you can say those are three things, not meaning that they're three things of the same kind or three things in the same category or three persons within God. Yeah, there's your threeness. So... Where do you get the part where Matthew says, implies, or assumes that they're one God? It's not when he says name in the singular here. Grammarians tell us that this is to be taken distributively. So, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is equivalent to in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit. It's not hard for a Unitarian to just accept this passage. Christians are baptized into these three realities, into God, into his Son, and into his Spirit. Where's the problem there? Where's the theological surprise? It's a passage you might think is consistent with a theory about a triune God, but he hasn't given us any reason to think that the author presupposes or teaches a triune God in this passage. At this point, he veers off into traditional sort of riff about the obscurity of the term person when it comes to traditional Trinitarian language. Now, this gets you into the question of what have you got three of? And of course, then the church has to sit down and do some head scratching and say, well, there's three. Mm, Can I just say there's the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Yeah, but could you give us a group noun for what there's three of? I'll say person, but don't go nuts with that or anything because it's not like there's three people. You ever notice we talk about three persons in the Trinity, but if I said three people in the Trinity, you'd go, that ain't right. Yeah. 
And when we're talking about a group of us, we don't say, um, look how many persons came here. Now, the fire marshal might, right? The fire marshal counts persons for some reason. Occupancy limited to 50 persons. But nobody else talks like that. And when we talk about people here and persons there, we're signifying to each other in simple language that is not exactly the same thing. But we've got to have some word for what there's three of, or we're not going to communicate at all. So a simple approach to the Trinity is to say, if you ask of God, what is God? The answer will be God, Godness, you know, deitas, uh, Godhood. But who is God? The answer will be Father and Son and Holy Spirit. So in really short form, one what and three who's. Ouch. Looked like he confused God with the idea of a divine nature, divine essence, or deity or divinity. If there's such thing as the divine essence or divinity, that's supposed to be a property. God in the Bible is not taught to be a property. He's taught to be a great and wonderful, powerful being, a concrete being, not an abstract being, a being with causal powers, a being who can bring things about and arguably who can be affected by what we do. Like, for instance, can be displeased if we go against his will. To confuse the one God with the property of divinity is not something that scriptural authors do. However, it is true in ancient times that sometimes when they talked about a divine nature, that just meant a divine being. And that way of talking about natures, you're a human nature and I'm a human nature. So they can talk about God in that way. One what and three who's? Wow. Not in the Bible. I mean, the one God is the Father in the New Testament. Okay, triunity, as I say, is a special word we made up to describe just this strange reality of who God is. Let me say, since this is a fantastic mission passage, go and make disciples in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Trinitarian theology goes with mission theology. It also does in the Gospel of John, where Jesus breathes on the disciples, says, as the Father has sent me, so send I you, receive the Holy Spirit. You see the Trinity at work there, right? Jesus saying, the Father sent me, I send you, receive the Holy Spirit. If I didn't have Matthew 28, I could probably teach the doctrine of the Trinity, but I'd rather not, because it's just that good. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Dr. Sanders expounds his third New Testament text, which he says will help us to see how the Trinity really is in the Bible. Speaking of so good, uh, John 1's absolutely mandatory, Matthew 28, you got to have that. After that, I could pick a lot of things, so I just picked my current favorite, Ephesians 2.18. Through him, that is Christ, who um, Paul has just been talking about, Christ who came and preached peace to those who are far off, I think in this case the Gentiles, and to those who are near, um, I think in his case the, the Jews who believe in Jesus. Through him, Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. The point I want to make here is, again, how closely involved the triunity of God is with um, our salvation and with the gospel. Paul's talking here, what kind of language is he using? He's talking about uh, worship, right? Access is a worship word in in the New Testament. Um, You can't just go to God. 
You need to have access to God. You need to get access to him. And for the Jew and Gentile to both have access to God means that they have been brought into the presence of God through Christ, who came and preached peace. What you get here, just a glimpse, you could say a lot more about this. I've written at least one book on this, that salvation and worship and fellowship are by and from and in and with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Yes, what he says there is true. I mean, Christian worship and salvation have to do in the New Testament with God, God's Son, and God's Spirit. That's true. However, in his Trinitarian zeal, again, Dr. Sanders just passes by some really obvious problems for his position that all the New Testament authors are Trinitarians. One of those is that you never see the triune God worshipped. You only see the Father worshipped and the Son worshipped, and the worship of the Son is said to be to the glory of the Father. That is not the worship pattern you would expect. Why is the Holy Spirit left out of worship? Why is the triune God as such left out of worship? It makes no sense. Well, it makes sense on Unitarian readings of the New Testament. The Bible does not portray a wonderful fellowship between the three of them, although it does portray a wonderful fellowship between the Father and the Son. That's a problem. And notice the Bible doesn't say that our fellowship is with the three of them. This is what it says explicitly. 1 John 1 verse 3, we declare to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. If Dr. Sanders is right, someone's missing there. This is also prayer language. When Christians pray to God, we are praying to the Father because of the Son or in the name of the Son and in the power of the Holy Spirit, whether we're thinking that thought or not. Christians know we're not approaching God on our own merits, in our own name, by our own power, so that even if you're talking to Jesus in prayer... You're not coming to him on your own, right? You're coming to him in the name of the Son and the power of the Spirit. So there's mediation built into the Christian notion of prayer. It's all Trinitarian, whether you're thinking Trinitarian thoughts or not. Okay, notice the general pattern here. Dr. Sanders fastens on something that's uncontroversial, that Christians pray to, I think he meant to say to the Father, in the name of the Son and by the power of the Spirit, Sure, that's the New Testament. And he's saying, aha, the New Testament is Trinitarian. Well, no, it's not. Nor is that obvious. And that's something that needs arguing for. You can say it's triadic in that it has to do with God, God's Son, and God's Spirit. But that's consistent with biblical Unitarian theology and with other sorts of Unitarian theology. Okay, so those are his three texts. That is his help for you to see the Trinity in the New Testament. Next, he's going to expound some claims that he finds in those texts. Some key concepts that we've got here, as we've gone through some sections of Scripture, I tried to point out to you some of the conceptual things that the church tradition, the tradition of theology, will develop. You get categories like identity and distinction. You get the co-eternity. He was in the beginning with God. You get threeness. There's sending. It's connected to the gospel. We could comb through a few other passages and kind of abstract out the conceptual goodies that are present there as we do solid exegesis of those passages. If you then assemble those goodies, you realize, oh yeah, this is a recognition of the triunity of God. 
When the Trinity's podcast returns, Dr. Sanders wraps up his case, and I give some reflections on the overall thrust of the lecture. I also discuss his secret, an important fact that he knows that he didn't share with this audience. I hope that one of the things I've done here is by sharing my personal obsession with the Trinity with you for about an hour, heighten your senses so that next time you go through any passage of the Bible, you will see the Trinity there and either think, dang, that Sanders, he just got like Trinity all over my glasses and now I'm seeing it everywhere, right? I, I hope that is the case. I hope this is kind of like uh, taking a little guided walk with someone who really knows the neighborhood you're walking through and points things out. Doesn't point out everything, but points out uh, an element of everything, so that from now on, your eyes are open to it. I'm confident in that because I'm robustly confident that the doctrine of the Trinity is revealed in Scripture, and that if you're Bible readers and Bible studiers, I don't have to have you come over to my house and do a personal, private, read-it-the-right-way Trinity Bible study. It really is in there. You're going to run into it. We make some mistakes sometimes when we think about how the doctrine of the Trinity is in Scripture. So the last thing I want to say is you could kind of go piece by piece through these logical elements of the doctrine of the Trinity and say, can I prove each one of these points, every claim, every truth claim embedded in this little diagram? Can I prove that the Father is God? Yep, got some verses for that. Can I prove that the Father is not the Holy Spirit? Yep. So you work your way all around, do your proof text. That's one way of doing it. Notice two things about that, though. I'm not saying don't do it. I've done it this way myself. Uh, I may yet do it this way again at some other point. I'm not making any promises. Whew. I'll be honest, if I had attended this lecture as an interested layperson wanting to know, is the Trinity really in the Bible, I'd be angry at this moment. He hasn't given any solid reasons. He's assured us that a case could be made, but he's not going to take the time to make it. Oh, and it's just obvious, and trust him, he can see it there. He's an expert on this whole landscape, so you should be satisfied with that. In fact, you should be grateful. But what he does now, I think, would aggravate me even more. But a couple things that are left out. Think about that line that says, the Father is not the Son. That is the strangest, most abstract thing I can think of to say about the Father and the Son. And I can't find a Bible verse about it, because all the Bible verses I can find say the Father loves the Son, the Father sends the Son, the Father glorifies the Son, the Son glorifies the Father, the Son loves the Father. So I have to take out all those great content-bearing verbs and replace them with, is not. Which <laughs> I think... Amen. Warms my heart. The Father is not the Son. Right? Like it, It's a necessary logical abstraction, but if it doesn't leave you wanting to sing holy, 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 yeah, there's a reason for that. This is, a, this is kind of a teaching tool to help you not make some mistakes. There is a relation among the Father and the Son and the Spirit, which this doesn't actually depict. It doesn't depict the love relationship. It doesn't show the way in which they are um, united to each other. It doesn't show that the Father begets the Son or that the Son is eternally from the Father. Um, so the classic doctrine of eternal generation, the eternal begetting of the Son, 
You could re- restate it more easily as just the eternal sonness of the Son, that, that the Son has sonhood with regard to the Father who has fatherhood, and they stand in that relationship of, uh, what are the fancy words, paternity and filiation. Yeah? That, that there's that fromness relationship that's what they've got. Now, if I attend this talk as an interested layman, I will know from my reading that even though traditional authors have asserted that the Father eternally begets the Son and eternally spirates the Spirit, or maybe it's the Father and Son together that do that, despite that fact, as an interested layperson, I will know that a lot of scholars think, no, that was just projected back into the texts. There isn't any passage in Old Testament or New Testament that says that the Father eternally begets the Son, passing on his nature to him in some sense. Eternal begetting, eternal procession or spiration, they're just not there. And this is why some Protestants say, look, can we have a triune God without this eternal generation and spiration stuff? I'm not even sure it makes sense, but anyway, it's just simply not biblical teaching. Now, in a lecture that's supposed to show how you can find the Trinity in the Bible, it takes a lot of chutzpah to now just throw in these two super controversial elements and say, oh yeah, well, those are obviously part of this true Trinity doctrine as well. Not even gesturing at any scripture, which might kind of sort of sound like that. I mean, I know this is a fun topic, but now we're just treating it like a plaything. We're not taking the audience seriously. We don't think the audience knows that it's controversial to say that the New Testament is Trinitarian. We don't think that the audience knows that a lot of Protestant evangelical scholars deny that the Bible anywhere teaches eternal generation and eternal spiration. We're just going to just merrily throw that in there? That's why I normally teach the doctrine of the Trinity this way. One God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The red arrows indicate the way that the Son comes from the Father. The Spirit is the Spirit of the Father. Spirit is fully God, but He's the Spirit of God. Um, So you have these eternal processions in the being of God. Here's the hard part. Last big step I'll ask you to take. These relations of origin would be who God is, even if the Father had never sent the Son to become incarnate or sent forth the Spirit to be poured out. Now, the whole gospel is that the Father did send to the Son and the Spirit, but even if he had not done that, God would still be Father, Son, and Spirit in these relations with the Son always coming from the Father within the life of God. So that then when the Son comes from the Father in the life of humanity, it's an extension of the eternal procession. And in technical Christian theological language, we call those missions. Missions was a piece of Trinitarian technical terminology before it was a description of something the church does. So you could go one step further. Like I asked you to imagine what if Jesus had never come and the Spirit had never come. Imagine God had never created anything. Imagine there was just God. If there's nothing but God, God's not lonely. God's not looking for a good time, wondering if anything exciting could happen. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not sitting around going, oh, if only we had the pitter-patter of little feet around the drafty mansions of heaven. If only there was some life and vitality and good stuff going on. In the fullness of the eternal, perfect, blessed life of God, there is fellowship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit it would be there even if we weren't here. There is us. God did create things. We did fall. We needed redemption. The Father sent the Son and the Holy Spirit. The gospel is true, and the gospel is grounded in the eternal triune being of God. 
That is my way of talking about the doctrine of the Trinity made known in Scripture. This is the leading edge of what the great tradition of Christian theology has developed in a wonderfully rich way and helpful way down through the centuries. But it's crucial for us not to simply say, I believe it because Augustine believes it or grandma believed it and that settles it. It's really crucial for us to be intelligent Bible believers who can point to where in Scripture God has made himself known as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Thank you. Okay, so in this last section, Dr. Sanders plays the part of a systematic theologian who specializes in the Trinity, and he busts out some deep, profound secrets about the triune God's life that really is never taught or implied anywhere in Scripture. You see, God sending the Son and the Spirit, which is in Scripture, that mirrors these eternal processions within the being of God, that the Father is eternally, in some sense, causing or giving rise to the Son and the Spirit. Right. Stuff that's just totally not in Scripture. It is part of small c Catholic traditions, but he's not going to tell you that. He also gives you this, you know, basically meaningless claim that he says the gospel is grounded in the eternal triune being. I believe in the gospel as explicitly taught in the New Testament. Roughly, just look at Acts two. I don't believe in an eternal triune being, so my gospel's ungrounded. Is that a problem? Why would that be a problem? Why would it be a good thing if it's true? I don't know. It's just an abstract claim. This is cutting-edge stuff, people. Cutting-edge, profound truths. Trust me. What does this say about contemporary systematic theology? One thing I think it shows is that a lot of systematic theologians in the academy nowadays are extremely out of touch with the concerns of the laity. If you're a Bible-oriented evangelical and someone says, hey, where's the Trinity in the Bible? Are you going to be satisfied with these reasons that he gave? Because you can understand all of those passages easily without importing the idea of a tripersonal God can't you? On the face of it, no tripersonal God was mentioned in those passages. So you're going to start to investigate. Then you'll find out that there's a long series of whistleblowers, people who are Bible-oriented evangelicals, and who look into it really deeply and say, oh, wait a second, there is no triune God there. The New Testament teaches that the one God is just the Father himself. People like Kermit Zarley, lifelong evangelical, people like me, people like the author and pastor and missionary Eric Chang, founder of the Christian Disciples Church. So what Sanders is doing is very sort of complacent and indulgent and just completely doesn't engage with anybody who's really worried that the Bible is not Trinitarian. And so if this is going to be shown, it's now up to apologists, many of whom are really not scholars. How can he do this? Doesn't the Evangelical Academy exist to serve the laity? I don't know. I think there's a kind of just smug, complacent Trinitarianism that's in place. Dr. Sanders can give a talk to an audience like this or give a talk in a megachurch and just sort of talk about how awesome the triune God is and how it's just everywhere and you can't miss it if you look in the Bible. People don't really know what the Trinity is, but they sort of think this is a precious Christian thing. It's very prestigious. 
here's this theologian who's telling us it's super awesome. So, I mean, it's not anything to be worried about, right? Right. Well, what can I tell you? Be a good Berean. Insist on hearing the full case. Who gives a convincing full case that really the best way to read the New Testament is to bring in this notion of a triune God? On the face of it, it's just not there. So it looks like we need an argument if we're going to claim that it's there. The fact that Dr. Sanders would choose to spend his hour in this way shows that he just does not think that this is any pressing concern for your average evangelical Christian. And this is very strange, because in his 2016 book called The Triune God, which is really addressed to the guild, it's addressed to theologians, systematic theologians, what he says is quite different. Starting on page 161, he says this, Christians have always claimed they got the doctrine of the Trinity from the Bible itself, while acknowledging they had rendered the doctrine more explicit and also admitting they had manufactured a set of extra-biblical terms to help them articulate it with greater clarity and conciseness, they insisted the reason they believed in the Trinity is that they found it in Scripture. In some periods of theological history, it may have seemed that most of the work to be done was the work of elaborating the metaphysical implications of the revealed doctrine, or of illustrating the principles involved, or of extending the analogical footholds for the belief. But in our time, it has become crucial for Trinitarian theology to demonstrate as directly as possible that it is biblical. The doctrine of the triune God must be known to be biblical and shown to be biblical. We cannot settle for claiming the doctrine merely harmonizes in some way with other biblical themes. If the suspicion has arisen that there are many ways of stating the gist of what is in Scripture, it may be tempting to present Trinitarianism as one of many possible legitimate trajectories that can be seen as emerging from the fullness of hermeneutical possibilities. We might win acceptance for Trinitarian theology as something relatively unobjectionable precisely because we present it as non-mandatory and contingent, a kind of semi-playful option among many, though graced with the favor of deep tradition. The time for these softer demonstrations and more elusive performances is not now. Again, in cultures marked by faith and docility toward the Church's teaching, it may have been possible to rest the burden of proof on the Church's tradition. But tradition was always a temporary resting station, a placeholder for revelation and the authority of Scripture. In contemporary intellectual culture, the full evidential weight of Christian faith in the triune God must fall on Scripture. If the doctrine is to thrive and serve its proper function in the Christian doctrinal ecosphere, it must be on the basis of Scripture. Skipping a bit, although there has been no change in the material content of the doctrine of the Trinity, the epochal shifts in biblical interpretation in the modern period have greatly altered the available arguments for Trinitarianism. Indeed, the doctrine of the Trinity stands today at a point of crisis with regard to its ability to demonstrate its exegetical foundation. Theologians once approached this doctrine with a host of biblical proofs, but one by one, many of those venerable old arguments have been removed from the realm of plausibility. The steady march of grammatical historical exegesis has tended in the direction of depleting Trinitarianism's access to its traditional equipment until a prominent feature of the current era is the growing unpersuasiveness and untenability of the traditional proof texts that were used to explain and demonstrate the doctrine. 
The heightened historical consciousness of modern scholars has made the very idea that Trinitarian theology has a foothold in the documents of the New Testament seem laughable. Quote, Whatever Jesus did or said in his earthly ministry, wrote R.P.C. Hansen in 1985, he did not walk the lanes of Galilee and the streets of Jerusalem laying down direct, unmodified Trinitarian doctrine. End quote. The presupposition has become widespread that the doctrine of the Trinity is a local phenomenon in the realm of systematic theology with no provenance in the territory of New Testament scholarship. So deep has this presupposition sunk into the practices of the field that Ulrich Mauser could write in 1990, quote, The historically trained New Testament scholar will today proceed with the task of interpretation without wasting a minute on the suspicion that the Trinitarian confessions of later centuries might be rooted in the New Testament itself and that the Trinitarian creeds might continue to function as valuable hermeneutical signposts for a modern understanding, end quote. We may succeed, Sanders continues, in countering any particular taunt and in raising objections to the hardening of categories that attends the overwhelming consensus of the Guild. Nevertheless, a great deal of the assured results of modern scholarship in this area simply must be accepted, even when the result is the partial removal of the traditional way of demonstrating the exegetical foundation of Trinitarian theology. A complete catalog of examples would approach a survey of the entire discipline of biblical studies in its bearing on the doctrine of the Trinity. Perhaps no development in biblical studies has left the foundation of Trinitarianism unaffected, partly because the long Christian exegetical tradition had at various times delighted to find the Trinity in nearly every layer and every section of Scripture. If the doctrine of the Trinity had come to be at home at every verse in the Bible, it was more or less implicated in revisionist approaches to every verse. At any rate, the overall trend of sober, historical grammatical labors has been toward the gradual removal of the Trinitarian implications of passage after passage. Let me paraphrase what he's just said. In pre-modern times... People would just merrily read the Trinity into practically any scripture. And now that we've decided that we need to interpret the Bible in its historical context, in the way that it would have been understood by its readers and its writers, since we've been doing that, we've just been peeling away proof text after proof text for the Trinity. And this has gotten to a point of crisis. He's saying that as far as textual scholars are concerned, that's people who concern themselves with historical understanding of the text as far as they're concerned just the trinity and incarnation just don't come into it those are later ideas if we're talking about interpreting first century documents who needs them right and he's saying that systematic theologians just proceed on their merry way and they don't care about this in many cases wow so there's a deep crisis in scholarship. How can we prove the Trinity from the Bible? The textual people say, no, nah, you just can't. The idea is not there. Wow. I guess this is just something the scholars need to know. Ordinary Joe Blow in the pew doesn't need to know about this. 
because it didn't come up in this hour-long lecture about the Bible and the Trinity. Later in the book, Dr. Sanders basically kind of says what he takes to be his role in all of this. He says, this is on page 177, The service that systematic theology can provide in the present state of disorder is not to do the exegesis itself. Not my job, right? That's convenient. Nor to dictate in advance what the exegetes are required to find. Hmm, are you sure about that? Sounded to me like that's what you were doing in the talk. Skipping a bit, he says, By offering dogmatic guidelines for Trinitarian exegesis, this book intends to highlight where meaningful work is to be done by qualified investigators. It is these larger structures that make sense of the individual bits of information that go into the doctrine of the Trinity. Skipping a bit, we have construed the entire canon of Scripture as bound up in a single narrative unity and taken the further step of acknowledging that unified witness as an element of God's economy of redemption and communication. All of this has been underwritten by the recognition that the Father's sending of the Son and the Holy Spirit reveals the divine life of eternal processions. This divine vantage point, made available to us by revelation, gives us the necessary remoteness and perspective from the details of Scripture that we can find our bearings as we carry out Trinitarian exegesis of Scripture's manifold unity. The doctrine of the Trinity is not just one doctrine among many, but is rather a conceptual foregrounding of the entire matrix of salvation historical revelation and must be approached from a place in which all the events of the economy and all the words of Scripture hang together with an inner unity. It is senseless to try to retain the result of the early church's holistic interpretation of Scripture, the perception of the biblical doctrine of the Trinity, without cultivating, in a way appropriate to our own time, the interpretive practice that produced that result. Basically, he's saying, if we take a broad view, we can just see that God is triune. But what kills me about this is... Some of the proof texts that he gestured at before that have been stripped away by modern scholarship are precisely the traditional proof texts to support eternal generation and procession. And he's saying, well, God sending the Son and Spirit, that just mirrors the eternal procession of the Son and Spirit from the Father. Well, that's just part of what modern interpretations have stripped away from traditional reading of the Bible. And he's saying, that's the key. That's the deep insight right there. Once you get that, you'll just see how the whole thing makes sense. So the thinking layperson is going to be wondering this. If our proof texts keep getting stripped away, if our arguments from the Bible to the Trinity keep getting stripped away by responsible scholarship, at what point are we going to ask, is the Trinity really in the Bible at all? Maybe this was a mistaken avenue that we've traveled down. When does that point come? I mean, Sanders isn't going to tell you. His whole job is just riffing on how awesome this idea of a triune God is. He has no interest, no interest in exploring, well, what if that was a mistake? Truth seekers do have an interest in that. Lots of mistakes have been made in Christian history, as we know. Widespread mistakes by the mainstream. You're a Protestant? Give your own examples. If the trend in recent scholarship is what he says, and he's totally right about that, we should be asking, when are we going to reconsider this issue? 
If you want to see some general, indisputable facts about the New Testament and its era, which should make you rethink whether there's a triune God in the New Testament, again, check out Podcast 189 for a more technical presentation, and check out about the first 25 minutes of Podcast 249 if you just want a very straightforward and simple, non-technical presentation of those facts. In conclusion, my advice to Dr. Sanders would be stop trying to hide this information from the evangelical public. Get out there, go ahead and make your best case that the New Testament really does imply and presuppose the Trinity. And while you're making that case, go ahead and engage with Protestant non-Trinitarian Christians and see what you can do to address the facts that I've cited. Facts which I claim would be very surprising if the New Testament authors are Trinitarians, and facts which would be expected if the authors are Unitarians. It looks like he needs to grapple with that evidence, and it looks like he's got a difficult case to make. He might, as a systematic theologian, say, let the textual guys do serious exegesis. But hey, Dr. Sanders, you're a Christian teacher teaching in Christian churches, I think you're responsible to give sober exegesis which conforms to currently known facts about the first century and about the New Testament authors. I hope that next time you're invited to show how the New Testament implies the Trinity, you take it a bit more seriously. This week's thinking music has been the track Mistakes Were Made by Ghosts. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode where you can listen to or download that entire track. Next week on the podcast, we're going to hear a 19th century biblical Unitarian make the case that the Apostle Paul is not a Trinitarian, that contrary to Dr. Sanders, Paul does not assume a triune God, but rather Paul assumes that the one God is the Father alone. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.